Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. In the last episode, Mr. Downing, the church warden, told his wife he intended to listen with the strictest impartiality to the girl's side of the story concerning those terrible milligans. But does he listen? Not at all. He is more concerned with noticing all the little homey details the girls have added to the cottage and how the housekeeping is done than in truly hearing what the girls have to say. And then, but I won't give anything else away. About the only bright spot in today's story is that Mabel discovers the missing lemonade money in the old cracked pitcher. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Dandelion Cottage by Carol Watson Rankin Chapter 13 The Junior Warden By nine o'clock the next morning, the girls were all at the cottage as usual. Mrs. Mapes had given them materials for a simple cake, and Jean and Betty were in the kitchen making it. Marjorie, singing as she worked, was running her Auntie Jane's carpet sweeper noisily over the parlor rug, while Mabel, whistling an accompaniment to Marjorie's song, was dusting the sideboard. At all times, the cottage furniture received so much unnecessary dusting that it would not have been at all surprising if it had worn thin in spots. When the doorbell rang suddenly and sharply, Marjorie's tune stopped short, high in air, and Mabel ran to the window. "'It's a man!' announced Mabel. "'Mr. Milligan?' asked Marjorie anxiously. "'He's moved, so I can't tell.' "'Try the other window,' urged Marjorie impatiently. It doesn't look like Mr. Milligan's legs. I can't see the rest of him. They look neat and expensive. Oh, it's probably just a salesman. They're kind of thick lately. You go to the door and tell him we're just pretend people while I'm putting the sweeper out of sight. Good morning, said Mr. Downing. Are you... Huh? Why? This is a very cozy little place. I had no idea it was so comfortable. May I come in? "'Yes,' returned Mabel, eyeing him doubtfully. "'But I think you're probably making a mistake. "'You see, we're not really truly people.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Downing with an amused glance at plump Mabel. "'Is it possible you're a ghost?' "'I mean,' explained Mabel, "'we're just children and this is only a playhouse, not a real one. "'If you have anything to sell or are looking for a boarding place,' or want to take our senses? No, said Mr. Downing. I don't want either your dollars or your senses. My name is Downing, and I'm not selling anything. I called on business. Who is the head of this, uh, this ghostly corporation? It has four, said Mabel. I'll get the rest. Betty and Jean, with grown-up gingham aprons tied about their necks, followed Mabel to the parlor. Mr. Downing had seated himself in one of the chairs, and the girls sat facing him in a bright-eyed row on the couch. 
their countenances were so eager and expectant that Mr. Downing found it hard to begin. I've come in, he said, to talk over a little matter of business with you. I understand that you've been having trouble with your neighbors, exchanging compliments. No, said honest Mabel, turning crimson. It was apples and tomatoes. The Milligans are the most troublesome neighbors we've ever had. So, said the visitor, raising his eyebrows in genuine surprise, why, I understood that it was quite the other way around. I'd like to hear your version of the difficulty. Jean and Betty, with occasional assistance from Marjorie and much prompting from Mabel, told him all about it. During the recital, Mr. Downing's attention seemed to wander, for his eyes took in every detail of the neat sitting room, strayed to the prettily papered dining room, and even rested lingeringly upon the one visible corner of the dainty blue bedroom. Betty had neglected to close the door between the kitchen and the dining room, which proved unfortunate, because the tiny scrap of butter that Jean had left melting on a very small pan on the kitchen stove got too hot, and with threatening hissing noises, began to give forth clouds of thick, disagreeable smoke. Jean, the first of the girls to notice it, flew to the kitchen, snatched a lid from the stove, and, with a newspaper for a holder, swept the burning butter, pan and all, into the fire. Then the paper in Jean's hand caught fire, and for the instant before she stuffed it into the stove and clapped the lid into place, fierce red flames leaped high. To the visitor, prepared by Mrs. Milligan for just such doings, it looked for a moment as if all the rear end of the cottage were in flames. But Jean returned to her place on the couch with an air of what looked to Mr. Downing very much like almost criminal unconcern. How was Mr. Downing, who did no cooking, to know that paper placed on a cake-baking fire always flares up in an alarming fashion without doing any real harm? He didn't know, and the incident decided the matter he was turning over in his mind. The girls had found it a little hard to tell their story, for it was plain that their visitor was using his eyes rather than his ears. Moreover, they were not at all certain that he had any right to demand the facts in the case. When the story was finished, Mr. Downing looked at the row of interested faces and cleared his throat. But for some reason, the words he meant to speak refused to come. He hadn't supposed that the evicting of unsatisfactory tenants would prove such an unpleasant task. The tenants, all at once, seemed part of the house, and the man realized suddenly that the losing of the cottage was likely to prove a severe blow to the four little housekeepers. Perhaps it was disconcerting to see the expression of puzzled anxiety that had crept into Betty's great brown eyes, into Jean's hazel ones, into Marjorie's gray ones, and Mabel's blue ones. At any rate, Mr. Downing decided to be well out of the way when the blow should fall. He realized that it would prove a trying ordeal to face all those young eyes, filled with indignation and probably with tears. Ahem, <clears throat> said Mr. Downing, rising to take his leave. I'm much obliged to you, young ladies. Hmm. The number of this house is what, if you please? 
Number 224, said Betty, whose mind worked quickly. Hmm, said Mr. Downing, writing it on the envelope he had taken from his pocket, and moving rather abruptly toward the door, as if desirous to escape as speedily as possible with the knowledge he had gleaned. Thank you very much. I bid you all a good morning. Now, what in the world did that man want? demanded Mabel, before the front door had fairly closed. Do you suppose he's some kind of a lawyer, or— and Mabel turned pale at the thought, a policeman disguised as as a human being. Do you suppose the Milligans are going to get us arrested for just two apples and and a little poetry? More probably, suggested Jean, he's a burglar. Didn't you notice the way he looked around at everything? I could see that he sort of lost interest after a while, as if he had concluded that we hadn't anything worth stealing. "'Nonsense,' said Betty. "'I don't know what he does for a living, but he can't be a burglar. "'He hasn't lived here very long, but he goes to our church "'and comes to our house to vestry meetings. "'Sometimes on warm Sundays, when there's nobody else to do it, "'he passes the plate.' "'Well,' said Mabel, "'I hope he isn't a policeman on weekdays.' "'It's more likely,' said Marjorie, "'that he does reporting for the papers.' The time Auntie Jane was in that railroad accident, a reporter came to our house to interview her, and he asked questions just as that Mr. Downing, or was that his name? As he did. He took the house number two. Oh, mercy, gasped Mabel, turning suddenly from white to a deep crimson. If those green apples get into the paper, I'll be too ashamed to live. Oh, girls, couldn't we stop him? Couldn't we? Couldn't we pay him something not to? It's probably in by now, said Marjorie teasingly. They do it by telegraph, you know. He couldn't have been a reporter, protested Mabel. Reporters are always young and very active, so they can catch lots of scoons, no, scoots. Scoops, corrected Jean. Well, scoops. He was kind of slow and a little bald-headed on top. I noticed it when he stooped for his hat. Well, anyway, comforted Jean, let's not worry about it. Let's rebuild our fire, of course it's out by now, and finish our cake. In spite of the cakes turning out much better than anyone could have expected with so many agitated cooks taking turns stirring it, there was something wrong with the day. The girls were filled with uneasy forebodings and could settle down to nothing. Marjorie felt no desire to sing, and even the cake seemed to have lost something of its flavor. Moreover, when they had stood for a moment on their doorstep to see the new steam road roller go puffing by, Lara had tossed her head triumphantly and shouted tauntingly, I know something I shan't tell. After that, the girls could not help wondering if Lara really did know something, some dreadful thing that concerned them vitally and was likely to burst upon them at any moment. For the first time in the history of their housekeeping, they could find nothing that they really wanted to do. During the afternoon, they had several little disagreements with each other. Mild Jean spoke sharply to Marjorie, and even sweet-tempered Betty was drawn into a lively dispute with Mabel. Moreover, all three of the older girls were inclined to blame Mabel for her fracas with the Milligans. And the culprit, ashamed one moment and defiant the next, 
was in a most unhappy frame of mind. Altogether, the day was a failure, and the four girls parted coldly at least an hour before the usual time. Chapter 14 An Unexpected Letter The next morning, Jean, with three large bananas as a peace offering, was the first to arrive at Dandelion Cottage. Jean, a wise young person for her years, had decided that a little hard work would clear the atmosphere. So, finding no one else in the house, she made a fire in the stove, put on the kettle, put up the leaf of the kitchen table, and began to take all the dishes from the pantry shelves. Dishwashing in the cottage was always far more enjoyable than this despised occupation usually is elsewhere, owing to the astonishing assortment of crockery the girls had accumulated. No two of the dishes, with the exception of a pair of plates bearing life-sized portraits of the frog that would a wooing go, whether his mother would let him or no, bore the same pattern. There was a bewildering diversity, too, in the sizes and shapes of the cups and saucers, and an alarming variety in the matter of color. But as the girls had declared gleefully a dozen times or more, it would be possible to set the table for seven courses when the time should come for Mr. Black's and Mrs. Crane's dinner party, because so many of the things almost matched if they didn't quite. Jean was thinking of this as she lifted the dishes from the shelf to the table and lovingly arranged them in pairs. The pink sugar bowl beside the blue cream pitcher. The yellow coffee cup beside the dull red Japanese teacup. And the love the giver mug beside the for my little friend oatmeal bowl. She had just taken down the big dusty cracked pitcher that matched nothing else which perhaps was the reason that it had remained high on the shelf since the day that Mabel had used it for her lemonade, when the doorbell rang. Hastily wiping her dusty hands, Jean ran to the door. No one was there, but the postman was climbing the steps of the next house, so Jean slipped her fingers expectantly into the rusty iron letter box. Perhaps there was something from Miss Blossom who sometimes showed that she had not forgotten her little landladies. Sure enough, there was a large white letter, not from Miss Blossom, to be sure, but from somebody. To the young cottagers, letters were always joyous happenings. They had no debts. Consequently, they were unacquainted with bills. With this auspicious beginning, for, of course, the coming of a totally unexpected letter was an auspicious beginning, it was surely going to be a cheerful, perhaps even a delightful day. Jean hummed happily as she laid the unopened letter on the dining room table. For, of course, a letter somewhat oddly addressed to the four young ladies at 224 Fremont Street could be opened only when all four were present. When Marjorie and Betty came in, they fell upon the letter and examined every portion of the envelope but neither girl could imagine who had sent it. It was impossible to wait for Mabel, who was always late, so Betty obligingly ran to get her. Even so, there was a considerable wait while Mabel laced her shoes. But presently, Betty returned with Mabel, still nibbling very much buttered toast at her heels. 
You open it, Jean, panted Betty. You can read cursive writing better than we can. Hurry, urged Mabel, who could keep other persons waiting much more easily than she herself could wait. Here's a fork to open it with, said Marjorie. I can't find the scissors. Hurry up. Maybe it's a party and we'll have to RSVP right away. Oh, goody! If it is, squealed Mabel, I can wear my new tan Oxfords. It's from yours respectably, no, yours regretfully, John W. Downing, announced Jean. The man that was here yesterday, you know. Read it, read it, pleaded the others, crowding so close that Jean had to lift the letter above their heads in order to see it at all. Do hurry up, we're crazy to hear it. My dear young ladies, read Jean, in a voice that started bravely, but grew fainter with every line. It is with sincere regret that I write to inform you that it no longer suits the convenience of the vestryman to have you occupy the church cottage on Fremont Street. It is to be rented as soon as a few necessary repairs can be made. And in the meantime, you will oblige us greatly by moving out at once. Please deliver the key at your earliest convenience to me, at either my house or this office. Yours regretfully, John W. Downing. For as much as two minutes, no one said a word. Jean had laid the open letter on the table. Marjorie and Betty, with their arms tightly locked, as if both felt the need of support, reread the closely written page in silence. When they reached the end, they pushed it toward Mabel. What does it mean in plain English? asked Mabel, hoping that both her eyes and her ears had deceived her. That somebody else is to have the cottage, said Jean, and that in the meantime we're to move. In the meantime, blurted Mabel with swift wrath, I should say it was the meantime, the very meanest time anybody ever heard of. I'd just like to know what right yours respectably John W. Downing has to turn us out of our own house. I guess we paid our rent. I guess there's blisters on me yet. I guess I dug dandelions. I guess I... But here Mabel's indignation turned to grief and with one of her very best howls and a torrent of tears, she buried her face in Jean's apron. Betty, asked Jean with her arms about Mabel, do you think it would do any good to ask your father about it? He's the minister, you know, and he might explain to Mr. Downing that we were promised the cottage for all summer. Papa went away this morning and won't be home for ten days. He has exchanged with somebody for the next two Sundays. My papa's away too, sobbed Mabel. Or he'd tell that vile Mr. Downing that it was all the Milligan's fault. They're the folks that ought to be turned out, and I, I, I just wish they had been. Why wouldn't it be a good idea, suggested Marjorie, for us all to go down to Mr. Downing's office and tell him all about it? You see, he hasn't lived here very long, and perhaps he doesn't understand that we've paid our rent for all summer. Yes, assented Jean. That would probably be the best thing to do. He won't mind us having to go to the office, 
because he told us to take the key there. But where is his office? I know, said Betty. Here's the address on the letter. And the dentist I go to is right near there. So we can find it easily. Then let's start right away, cried eager Mabel, uncovering a disheveled head and a tear-stained countenance. Don't let's lose a minute. Mercy, no, said Jean, taking Mabel by the shoulders and pushing her before her to the blue room mirror. Do you think you can go any place looking just like that? Do you think you look like a desirable tenant? We've all got to be just as clean and neat as we can be. We've got to impress him with with our ladylikeness. I'll braid Mabel's hair, offered Betty, if Marjorie will run around the block and get all our hats. I'm wearing Dick's straw one with the blue ribbon just now, Marjorie. You'll find it someplace in our front hall if Tommy hasn't got it on. Bring mine, too, said Jean. It's in my room. I don't know where mine is, said Mabel, but if you can't find it, you'd better wear your Sunday one and let me wear your everyday one. I don't see myself lending you any more hats, said Marjorie, who had, like the other girls, brightened at the prospect of going to Mr. Downing's. I haven't forgotten how you left the last one outdoors all night in the rain, and how it looked afterwards, when Auntie Jane made me wear it to punish me for my carelessness. You'll go in your own hat or none. Well, said Mabel meekly, I guess you'll probably find it in my room under the bed, if it isn't in the parlor behind the sofa. Now remember, said Jean, who was retying the bow on Betty's hair, we are all to be polite, whatever happens, for we mustn't let Mr. Downing think we're anything like the Milligans. If he won't let us have the cottage when he knows about the rents being paid, though I'm almost sure he will let us keep it, why, we'll just have to give it up and not let him see that we care. I'll be good, promised Betty. You needn't be afraid of me, said Mabel. I wouldn't humble myself to speak to such a despicable man. Chapter 15 An Obdurate Landlord Twenty minutes later, when Mr. Downing roared, Come in! in the terrifying voice he usually reserved for salesmen and other unexpected or unwelcome visitors, he was plainly very much surprised to see four pale girls with shocked, reproachful eyes file in and come to an embarrassed standstill just inside the office door, which closed of its own accord, and left them imprisoned with the enemy. They waited quietly. Oh, good morning, said he, in a much milder tone, as he swung about in his revolving chair. What can I do for you? Have you brought the key so soon? We came, said Jean, propelled suddenly forward by a vigorous push from the rear, to see you about Dandelion Cottage. We think you've made a mistake. Indeed, said Mr. Downing, who did not at any time like to be considered mistaken. Suppose you explain. So sweet-voiced Jean explained all about digging the dandelions to pay the rent, about Mr. Black's giving them the key at the end of the week, and about all the lovely times they had had and were still hoping to have in their precious cottage before giving it up for the winter. Mr. Downing, personally, did not like Mr. Black. 
he had a poor opinion of the older man's business ability, and perhaps a somewhat exalted opinion of his own. He considered Mr. Black old-fashioned, and far too easygoing. He felt that parish affairs were more likely to flourish in the hands of a younger, shrewder, and more modern person, and he had an idea that he was that person. At any rate, now that Mr. Black was out of town, Mr. Downing was glad of an opportunity to display his own superior shrewdness. He would show the vestry a thing or two, and incidentally increase the parish income, which, as everybody knew, stood greatly in need of increasing. He had no patience with slipshod methods. He was truly sorry when business matters compelled him to appear hard-hearted, but to him it seemed a little short of absurd, for a man of Mr. Black's years, to waste on four small girls a cottage that might be bringing in a comfortable sum every month in the year. No, that's a very pretty little story, said Mr. Downing, when Jean had finished. But you see, you've already had the cottage more than long enough to pay you for pulling those few weeds. Phew! exclaimed Mabel in indignant protest, and forgetting her promise of silence. Phew! Why, there were billions of em. If we'd been paid two cents a hundred for em, we'd all be rich. Mr. Black promised us we could have that cottage for all summer, and our rent hasn't half perspired yet. She means expired, said Marjorie. But she's right for once. Mr. Black did say we could stay there all summer, and it isn't quite August yet, you know. Hmm, said Mr. Downing. Nobody said anything to me about any such arrangement, and I'm keeping the books. I don't know what Mr. Black could have been thinking of if he made any such foolish promise as that. Of course it's not binding. Why, that cottage ought to be renting for ten or twelve dollars a month. But the plaster's very bad, pleaded Betty eagerly, and the roof leaks in every room in the house but one, and something's the matter underneath, so it's too cold for folks to live in during the winter. It was vacant for a long time before we had it. It looked very comfortable to me, said Mr. Downing, who had lived in the town for only a few months, and neither knew nor suspected the real condition of the house. I'm afraid your arrangement with Mr. Black doesn't hold good. Mr. Morgan and I think it best to have the house vacated at once. You see, we're in danger of losing the rent from the next house, because the Milligans have threatened to move out if you don't. If, if... If seven dollars and a half would do you any good, said Mabel, and if you're mean enough to take all the money we've got in this world. I'm not, said Mr. Downing. I'm only reasonable. And I want you to be reasonable, too. You must look at this thing from a business standpoint. You see, the rent from those two houses should bring in twenty-five dollars a month, which isn't more than a sufficient return for the money invested. The taxes? A note for you, Mr. Downing, said a boy, who had quietly opened the office door. Why, said Mr. Downing, when he had read the note, this is really quite a remarkable coincidence. This communication is from Mr. Milligan, who has found a desirable tenant for the cottage he is now in, and wishes himself to occupy the cottage you are going to vacate. 
Very clever on Mr. Milligan's part. This will save him $5 a month and is a most convenient arrangement all around. He wishes to move in at once. Mr. Milligan, gasped three of the astonished girls. Those Milligans in our house, cried Mabel. Well, isn't that the worst? You see, said Mr. Downing, it is really necessary for you to move at once. I think you had better begin without further loss of time. Good morning, good morning, all of you, and please believe me, I'm sorry about this, but it can't be helped. I hope, said Mabel, summoning all her dignity for a parting shot, that you'll never live long enough to regret this, this outrage. There are seven rolls of paper on the walls of that cottage that belong to us, and we expect to be paid for every one of them. How much? asked Mr. Downing, suppressing a smile, for Mabel was never more amusing than when she was very angry. Five cents a roll, thirty-five cents altogether. Mr. Downing gravely reached into his trousers' pocket, fished up a handful of loose change, scrupulously counted out three dimes and a nickel, and handed them to Mabel, who, with averted eyes and chin held unnecessarily high, accepted the price of the blossom wallpaper haughtily, and, following the others, stalked from the office. The unhappy girls could not trust themselves to talk as they hastened homeward. They held hands tightly, walking four abreast along the quiet street, and barely managed to keep the tears back, and the rapidly swelling lumps in their little throats successfully swallowed, until Jean's trembling fingers had unlocked the cottage door. Then, with one accord, they rushed pell-mell for the blue bedroom, hurled themselves upon its excelsior pillows, and burst into tears. Jean and Betty cried silently but bitterly. Marjorie wept audibly with long, shuddering sobs. But Mabel simply bawled. Mabel always did her crying on the excellent principle that if a thing were worth doing at all, it was worth doing well. She was doing it so well on this occasion that Jean, who seldom cried, and whose puffed scarlet eyelids contrasted oddly and rather pathetically with her colorless cheeks, presently sat up to remonstrate. Mabel, she said, slipping an arm about the chief mourner, do you want the Milligans to hear you? We're on their side of the house, you know. Jean couldn't have used a better argument. Mabel stopped short in the middle of one of her very best howls, sat up, and shook her head vigorously. Well, I guess I don't, she said. I'd die first. I thought so, said Jean, with just a faint glimmer of a smile. We mustn't let those people guess how awfully we care. Go bathe your eyes, Mabel. There must be a little warm water in the tea kettle. Then the comforter turned to Betty and made the appeal that was most likely to reach that always-ready-to-help young person. Come, Betty, dear, you've cried long enough. We must get to work, for we've a tremendous lot to do. Don't you suppose that if we had all the things packed in baskets or bundles, we could get a few of your brothers to help us move out after dark? I just 
can't let those Milligans gloat over us while we go back and forth with things. Betty's only response was a sob. Where in the world can we put the things? asked Marjorie, sitting up suddenly and displaying a blotched and swollen countenance, very unlike her usual fair, rose-tinted face. Of course we can each take our dolls and our books home, but our furniture... I'm going to ask Mother if we can't store it upstairs in the barn loft. I'm sure she'll let us. Oh, I wish Mr. Black were here. It doesn't seem possible we've really got to move. There must be some way out of it. Oh, Betty, couldn't we write to Mr. Black? It would take too long, sobbed Betty, sitting up and mopping her eyes with the muslin window curtain, which she could easily reach from the foot of the bed. He's way off in Washington. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Why couldn't we telegraph, demanded Marjorie, with whom hope died hard. Telegrams go pretty fast, don't they? They cost terribly, said Betty. They're, they're almost as expensive as express packages. Still, we might find out what it costs. I know the telegraph bad wheezed Mabel from the wash basin. I'll go home and telephone him and ask what it costs. I've heard my father give him messages lots of times. Oh, bye. My nose is all stuffed up. Try a handkerchief, suggested Jean. Go ask if you want. It won't do any harm, nor probably any good. Mabel ran home, taking care to keep her back turned toward the Milligan house. During her brief absence... The girls bathed their eyes and made sundry other futile attempts to do away with all outward signs of grief. He says, cried Mabel, bursting in excitedly, that sixty cents is the regular price in the daytime, but it's forty cents for a night message. It seems kind of mean to wake folks up in the middle of the night just to save twenty cents, doesn't it? Yes, said Betty. I couldn't be impolite enough to do that to anybody I like as well as I like Mr. Black. If we haven't enough money to send a daytime message, we mustn't send any. Well, we haven't, said Jean. We've only thirty-five cents. And we wouldn't have had that, said Mabel, if I hadn't remembered that wallpaper just in the nick of time. Strangely, not one of the girls thought of the money in the bank. Perhaps it did not occur to them that it would be possible to remove any portion of their precious seven dollars and a half without withdrawing it all. They knew little of business matters, nor did they think of appealing to their parents for aid at this crisis. Indeed, they were all too dazed by the suddenness and tremendousness of the blow to think very clearly about anything. The sum needed seemed a large one to the girls, who habitually bought a cent's worth of candy at a time from the generous proprietor of the little corner shop. Mabel, the only one with an allowance, was to her father's way of thinking, a hopeless little spendthrift, already deeply plunged in debt by her unpaid fines for lateness to meals. The Tucker income did not go round even for the grown-ups, so, of course, there were few pennies for the Tucker children. Marjorie's Auntie Jane had ideas of her own on the subject of spending money for little girls. Marjorie did not suspect that the good but rather austere woman made a weekly pilgrimage to the bank for the purpose of religiously depositing a small sum in her niece's name, 
and, if she had known it, Marjorie would probably have been improvident enough to prefer spot cash in smaller amounts. Only that morning, tender-hearted Jean had heard patient Mrs. Mapes lamenting because butter had gone up two cents a pound and because all the bills had seemed larger than those of the preceding month. Jean always took the family bills very much to heart. The girls sorrowfully concluded that there was nothing left for them to do but to obey Mr. Downing. They had looked forward with dread to giving up the cottage when winter should come, but the idea of losing it in midsummer was a thousand times worse. We'll just have to give it up, said grieved little Betty. There's nothing else we can do with Mr. Blackaway. When I go home tonight, I'll write to him and apologize for not being able to keep our promise about the dinner party. That's the hardest thing of all to give up. But you don't know his address, objected Jean. Yes, I do, because Father wrote to him about some church business this morning before going away and gave Dick the letter to mail. Of course, Dick forgot all about it and left it on the hall mantelpiece. It's probably there yet, for I'm the only person that ever remembers to mail Father's letters. He forgets them himself most of the time. Now let's get to work, said Jean. Since we have to move, let's pretend we really want to. I've always thought it must be quite exciting to really, truly move. You see, we must get it over before the Milligans guess that we've begun, and there isn't any too much time left. I'll begin to take down the things in the parlor and tie them up in the bedclothes. We'll leave all the curtains until the last, so that no one will know what we're doing. I'll help you, said Betty. Mabel and I might be packing the dishes, said Marjorie. It'll be easier to do while we have the table left to work on. Come on, Mabel. Mabel followed obediently. When the forlorn pair reached the kitchen, Marjorie announced her intention of exploring the little shed for empty baskets, leaving Mabel to stack the cups and plates in compact piles. Mabel, without knowing just why she did it, picked up her old friend, the cracked lemonade pitcher, and gave it a little shake. Something rattled. Mabel, always an inquisitive young person, thrust her fingers into the dusty depths to bring up a piece of money. Two pieces, three pieces, four pieces. Oh, she gasped. It's my lemonade money. Oh, what a lucky omen, girls. The next instant, Mabel clapped a plump, dusty hand over her own lips to keep them from announcing the discovery, and then, stealthily concealing the twenty cents in the pocket that still contained the wallpaper money, she stole quickly through the cottage and ran to her own home. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Dandelion Cottage. I'd love to hear from you, so please send an email to me at kluker at marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.